Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and the wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, as always, Gareth. I'm fairly certain of that. <laughs> and with me, as always, are my co-hosts. Aaron, say hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, Andrew, say hi. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. So this week, we've got everything from condors showing us that life can find a way anywhere and anyhow uh, to wolves to one of Britain's coolest dinosaurs that, ha- that has ever existed. Right the way through to us, well, explaining the difference between carnivore and carnivorous. But let's start things off with the news. It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news, and Aaron is going to start us off with wolf news. Yes, because it's more of a follow-up Again. to... I know, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> it's because it's a follow-up to the um, news that I shared last time. You know, the, the uh, basically, Idaho and wolf. the Idaho government slaughtering wolf pups and stuff. Oh. So this news comes to us from e News Greenwire, um, and it's... Uh, article by a Michael Doyle, uh, and the headline is Indigenous Activists Seek High-Level Help for Grey Wolf Push. And basically, it's a in, in, uh, indig- Indigenous Activists will be in Washington, D.C. this week. They plan to secure an emergency return of federal protections for some Grey Wolf populations, uh, arguing that this is a matter of culture to Native American tribes. In fact, similar to how I mentioned that this new legislation is a redeclaration of war against wolves, Casey Camp Horonek, a uh, Ponca Nation elder, said, and I quote, who can't see this decimation of the wolf as part of a continuing war on ind- indigenous cultures? They're obviously thinking along the same lines that we are. Um, elders and other spokespersons for Indigenous Affairs have gathered to urge Interior Department inv- uh, officials to relist the Grey Wolves under the Endangered Species Act, which I'm going to repeat, they were taken off by the genius that is Donald bloody Trump. Currently, officials are suggesting more studies need to take place uh, in order to do this. The Fish and Wildlife Service said a complete study of whether or not the wolves need relisting was required and this could take up to 12 months making an emergency relist and really tricky which is hugely prob- problematic given the ways and means that they've allowed people to kill them in idaho right now because uh, in 12 months they can deplete the wild stock quite horrifically a congressional research service uh, report noted that the Endangered Species Act requires Interior to to exercise emergency authority to relist the delisted species when necessary to prevent a significant risk to the well-being of the species. However, they also noted that as of October 2020, no species had been relisted on an emergency basis under this authority. So it doesn't it, it doesn't exactly look good either. Eric Molvar, uh, executive director of the West Western Watersheds Project said aggressive anti-wolf state laws and regulations in Montana, Idaho and Wyoming uh, place wolves at risk of extinction in these states. 
and wolf populations remain tenuous or absent in other Western states within their historical range. Of course, many Westerners feel opposed to all of this. Uh, Senator for Montana, Steve Daines, said activist environmental groups are diverting limited resources from protecting species that are actually endangered in an exercise that we know will be futile. You can kind of see the type of mind that they're up against because that makes it sound hopeless unfortunately. Mm. That being said, at least indigenous peoples are, are getting behind this and trying to protect the wolf. The current status review was prompted by two petitions proposing to list the grey wolf's northern Rocky Mountain distinct population segment or a new western distinct population segment as a threatened or endangered species. Uh, one petition proposed listing the northern Rocky Mountain population segment banning Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, the eastern one-third of Washington and Oregon, and part of north-central Utah, too. Both petitions also proposed an alternative to include all or part of the northern Rocky Mountain distinct population segment states, uh, along with California, Colorado, Nevada, and in one petition, northern Arizona. So they are trying for quite a big stretch of America's grey wolf range, uh, so I really hope that, that this helps. The Fish and Wildlife Service said that the petitioners present credible and substantial information that human-caused mortality may be a potential threat to the species in Idaho, Montana. When, I mean, you think, given all the, <laughs> the kill methods they've legalised over there, the fact that, you are, that they're saying you have every right in the world to go and run over a wolf on purpose in your, on your quad bike or in your truck is, is disgusting. Anyway... Idaho this year, here we go, uh, began allowing hunters to use night vision goggles, snowmobiles, all-terrain vehicles and helicopters and now authorises year-round wolf trapping on private property. Montana now permits previously outlawed practices including snaring, baiting and night hunting and wolf trapping seasons were extended as well. Hopefully the added grit of the indigenous peoples of America will be enough to secure a safer future for these grossly persecuted grey wolf populations and i really do hope that and it seems like very very slowly the average joe non-native american shall we say is uh is, is starting to get on board with the wolf but they're still up against this stone age philosophy uh but yeah so that's that's my my news it's just an update on the situation from uh that I first reported on, uh, was it last week? And next time I'll have non-wolf non news, I promise. I just thought, like I said, I thought it was a good good follow-up to the last item that I had. Well, we'll go from wolf news on to, uh, to Drew's news. <laughs> yes. That, that, that rhymes, doesn't it? That rhymes. Yeah. Why have we never uh, hit on that? Why, why have we, well, all discoveries every, every week on this podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my, uh, this is very, very US-based very us focused yes so my news article this week is some new exciting science and it involves the california condor um i got this article from the scientist and it starts by saying the california condor dropped to fewer than two dozen birds in 1980s but the california condor recovery program successfully bred the animals back from the brink as part of that program researchers collected dna samples from the birds to gain, an in, uh, to gain insights into the genetic diversity of the population and to reduce potential inbreeding. Those molecular samples have now revealed something completely unexpected. So, yeah, because you might be asking, well, this sounds like news from quite a long time ago. It was back in 1982, but this is, this is brand new. 
Two of the California condor females produced young without a male partner, a phenomenon called parthenogenesis, which, I mean, we may cover as a word of the week one day, but, I mean, it's mm. here now. But basically, virgin birth. These births were especially surprising because both female birds were housed with males that sired other offspring with them before and after the unfertilized but viable eggs were produced. So one was produced um, back in 2001 and one back in 2009. Uh, Oliver Ryder, studied co-author and director of the Conservation Genetics for the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, said, uh, why it happened, we just don't know. What we do know is that it happened more than once and it happened to two different females. Um, on whether it would happen again, he said he believed so. Why not? I guess, because it's already happened once, so why wouldn't it happen again? Uh, the article then goes on to say, whether parthenogenesis contributes meaningfully to the condor population can be exploited or can be exploited to aid in the animal's recovery remains to be seen. Both of the parthenotes, so that's the Jesus offspring, were relatively small, uh, both male, and both died before becoming sexually mature. Uh, one was just shy. So one lived nearly two years, the other one nearly eight years, which is yeah, just shy of breeding age. And they can live to uh, well into their 50s. Um, other examples of parthenogenesis known in birds have almost all died before hatching. And that these condors lived as long as they did might suggest viable parthenogenetic, uh, parthenogenetic offspring are possible. So this is one of the most important studies in the field of parthenogenesis in birds. So this could well happen in other species of bird. Uh, the only reason this was discovered um, and why this is news is because of the very detailed genetic studies done on these condors uh, because they were in such dire straits. Otherwise, it would have gone completely unknown, considering both females uh, otherwise live with the male and they just wouldn't have realized that those youngsters were little Jesus birds. Mm -hmm. um, but it could very well mean that there are some bird Jesuses in your garden right now. And we just won't know unless, they, unless we do some genetic studies on them. Are the, are the birds worshipping them? or uh... Uh, There was no mention of that, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, why not? Yeah. I mean, why speaking not? of someone who, who quite likes uh, keeping stick insects, parthenogenesis is, is nothing new. You know, it's always interesting when it's in a, a vertebrate, yes. uh, especially something as, as sort of high up the evolutionary tree as a bird is um, always quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I remember a few few years ago now it was news um that uh, anacondas um could also produce hey there's the cookie uh, <laughs> could <laughs> could um have virgin births as well and uh, then you had the komodos at chester zoo did that yep that's yep. right uh, but yeah this is this is one of the first pretty much in uh, or at least the first sort of properly studied in in birds hmm. but yeah i mean it's, it's pretty handy when a, a species is on sort of the brink that it could just go I'm just going to push one out how bad were those male birds? Well, <laughs> they went. You know, I wonder if they knew. <laughs> are you yeah. mine? Who's your, who are you? You look a lot like your mum, you know. You do look very like your mum. <laughs> very, very much like your mum. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Good news as well, in that sense. It is, it is good. Oh, yeah, it's ultimately good news because mm. I mean, right. it can be, it could be used. Life, you know, potentially. Yes, life finds a way. Indeed. Indeed. So before we start going heavily into quoting Ian Malcolm, let's move on to an animal featured in the Jurassic Park franchise. Um, woefully, I must admit. But we're going to go now into uh, my creature feature, where we're going to talk about Baryonyx. It's the creature feature. Right, we're into this week's creature feature. And this week, I get to talk about 
uh, Baryonyx, a dinosaur of which I have been obsessed with since a kid. And it's well, it's changed an awful lot over the uh, the last sort of 30 odd years since its discovery. And I'm assuming both of you are quite familiar with Baryonyx. Both with Barry. Yeah. With good old Baryonyx. Um, yeah. But uh, Baryonyx itself, its, uh, its name means heavy claw. Uh, and that's probably one of the biggest defining features of Baryonyx, that huge claw on its first finger, which it used to, uh, to catch fish with. But we'll go more into uh, how it used it uh, a little bit later on. But its full name is Baryonyx walkeri, uh, and that refers to um, the, uh, the, and this always irritates me, the amateur fossil collector William J. Walker, who found the original parts of the specimen. I, I hate the term amateur fossil hunter because it's such a, a downwards look on people who who basically make huge discoveries and this guy did make a huge discovery which um, i've added in a bit at the end about uh, the actual discovery of baryonyx and the work that went into it uh, went into uh, to classifying it as well so the uh, the holotype specimen the one that we base everything on this original one that was found may not have been fully grown uh, and was estimated to have been somewhere between 7.5 and 10 meters uh, long and weighed up to 1.2 to 1.7 metric tons. So it's a decent sized animal. Um, it's not something you'd want to mess with. The best estimate size wise, you know, puts these guys at, at being sort of a mid-level carnivore. So, you know, they're, they're, they're big enough to kill you if you got close enough to one. But we're not talking something the size of a T-Rex here. So Baryonyx, being a member of the Spinosaurid family uh, and being one of the sort of original members of the Spinosaurid family to be discovered, had a long, low and narrow snout, uh, which compared to that of a gharial is very, very similar. Uh, a gharial's type of crocodile that specializes in eating fish. The tip of the snout uh, expands uh, to the sides in the shape of what's called a rosette, which allows the teeth to sort of splay out slightly and it makes it a little bit easier for catching fish, just like in the, uh, the, the mouth of a gharial as well. Now, behind, behind this sort of rosette, you've got the upper, the upper jaw has a notch, uh, which fitted into the lower jaw, which curved upwards uh, in the same area. Uh, this gives it a sort of a much more sort of grasping of, of larger prey uh, and allows it to hold on and lock on to uh, slippery fish, basically, because if you're eating fish, that's, you know, something that can wriggle and jump out your mouth very, very easily. But all of those teeth and some of them pointing in different directions help to lock that prey in place and keep it in one area. It also had a triangular crest on the top um, of its uh, its nasal bones. And this seems to be a feature that most members of the Spinosaur family have little crest ornamentation um, to one form or another, which is very, very different to the Jurassic Park one. And I get very annoyed with how it was portrayed in uh, Jurassic World because the original Jurassic World film sort of material had it portrayed as this beautiful, or at least the concept art, had it portrayed as this beautifully drawn out, coloured, realistic looking animal. And then we got that horrible monstrosity in uh, Fallen Kingdom that comes out of the, uh, the sort of sewer pipe thing, which looks nothing like a baryonyx. It, it just does not look right at all. Uh, in fact, there was a thing going around Facebook a, a brief um, while ago. Someone had edited out the whole thing and re-edited in a much better looking, more accurate baryonyx. So whoever did that, thank you, because uh, that just makes me feel a hell of a lot better to see a baryonyx looking the way it should. 
And I don't know why big budget Hollywood can't do that. I, I believe the reason that they didn't do it is they didn't want people getting it confused with the Spinosaurus. It doesn't have a sail on its back for one. So, uh, you know, it's also not a giant monster thing that they showed in the third film. So, yeah, I don't know who's getting those two confused at face value. But anyway, I digress. Let's get back to the real animal here. <laughs> so it lived in the Barmanian stage of the early Cretaceous. Uh, around 130 to 125 million years ago. And the specific sort of, that it's been found in, the specific rock, is known as the weld clay. Uh, and it represents a non-marine, but still aquatic environment. It's been interpreted as sort of mudflat environments for shallow sea, uh, like shallow water lagoons, marshes, basically a very, very wet, boggy area, but with lots of sandbars, you know, nice sort of beaches and things for these guys to find their food. So during the early Cretaceous, the weld uh, area of Surrey uh, and Sussex, uh, as well as Kent, were partially covered by a large, fresh uh, to brackish water uh, lake. Now, this lake itself, I've brought up as a map behind me that you too can see. If you imagine the southern portion of Britain covered in or landmass, but everywhere from London, right the way down across the Isle of Wight, and down as far as Paris, uh, you have a large lagoon that um, was fed by rivers that came down from the north of where London sits today. So this whole area was very, very wet, had lots of rivers flowing through it, lots of sort of low aquatic environments, uh, river deltas passing through it, meaning that the, you know there is a lot of habitat here both highland areas and and sort of subtropical, similar to present-day Mediterranean sort of climates. So some of the dinosaurs that lived in this area as well, because it is a very well-established sort of ecosystem now, we've got everything from crocodiles uh, and, uh, you know, right the way down to insects being found in this clay. So we know an awful lot about what the environment looked like. But some of the larger things, the, the dinosaurs that were living at the time, uh, you've got the iguanodontid uh, dinosaur, uh, Mantellosaurus. You've got the large carnivores known as uh, Megalosaurus. You've got Rhyperivenator and Ceratosuchops, which we covered in a news article. Those two very similar Baryonychine uh, dinosaurs that were found in the uh, the same area. You've got Neovenator, uh, another sort of mid to large carnivorous dinosaur, the early Tyrannosaurid, Eotyrannus. Uh, you've also got Camelospondylus and Ornithodromius, uh, Hypsilophodon, and Veladosaurus as well. There are sauropods and even uh, ankylosaurs like Polycanthus roaming around this area. So there's a huge variety of large carnivores, but there's also a huge variety of prey species as well for things to be eating. So this is a very active environment um, with lots of different things to basically uh, predate on and be predated by if you're not careful. Now, like I just mentioned, Rhyperovenator and Ceratosuchops are those two very new uh, members of the, um, the Spinosaurid family that looked very similar in shape, size and everything to Baryonyx. They both lived in this same environment. And there's been a great deal of work looking into why we've got so many different, but still very, very similar dinosaurs living in the same environments as well. And Britain is no different to places like North Africa, where you have Spinosaurus living with Carcharodontosaurus and, and living with various other ones. So there seems to be some phenomenon happening with large carnivorous dinosaurs, that allow them to basically live in the same area because they find their own niche. So there's a couple of different thoughts on it. It's generally thought that large predators would only occur in areas that are basically allow 
to meet their ecological demands, which, you know, is everything from food to space to numbers wise. Um, yet the Mesozoic assemblages throughout the world include two or more theropods uh, that are generally comparable in size uh, and morphology as well. So they, they look physically similar. It also appears uh, this seems to be very much the case for Spinosaurus and Spinosaurids. They seem to appear in places where they are sharing their environment with other uh, other dinosaurs that are very, very similar in size as well. Um, this could be for a variety of different reasons. Uh, it may be for environmental circumstances benefiting those particular niches that those animals are living in. But the other thought is it's possible niche partitioning could be um, the, the, you know, the, the way that these things get on. So things like Ceratosuchops and Rhyperovenata and Baryonyx may be living in the same environment, but they may be specializing in different forms of prey. They all look very, very similar to each other, but they're doing something slightly different to each other. Now, whether that's something to do with the time of the year and, you know, two of them disappear off to a different part of the, the region and only turn up in the same time when, you know, the, the food is good in that particular area. It may be different habitats in that same ecosystem. So they may be living in the same area relatively, but in a totally different habitat to each other. It also may depend on a um, variety of different reasons. Um, we just haven't fully figured that one out yet. But what we do know is that these dinosaurs are living in the same habitat in roughly the same time period as well. So we're seeing a huge variety of, of animals living in a relatively small space, a relatively small area at the time. So as I've mentioned, the diet, you know, this thing looks like a fish eater. It has the same sort of generalized snout that most fish, uh, most members of its family uh, have and most members of the spinosaurid family appear to be fish eaters in one form or another so it's what's known as a piscivore that means it eats fish uh, but there has believe it or not you know as with every dinosaur there is controversy there has been a variety of different theories put forward over what Baryonyx was eating. Uh, in 1986, a couple of years uh, after its discovery, two um, researchers, Charig and uh, Milner, who basically put together most of the actual effort classifying Baryonyx, uh, suggested that its elongated snout with uh, many finely serrated teeth uh, was indicative of Baryonyx being Episcopal. And, you know, that makes perfect sense. They were the two looking at this thing at the time. However, in 1987, a Scottish biologist, Andrew Kitchener, uh, disputed this hypothesis uh, for the behaviour of baryonyx and suggested that it, it must have been a scavenger using its long neck to feed uh, on the ground, uh, using its claws to break open in, into carcasses and its long snout with nostrils set far back on the, the sort of head uh, for breathing so it didn't stick its nose into uh, into rotting flesh, <laughs> suggested that it used that to investigate the body cavity. Kitchener argued that baryonyx jaws and teeth were too weak to kill other dinosaurs and too heavy to catch fish. So saying that it basically couldn't do anything, you know, it, it just had to lumber around and find things to eat. And this is very indicative of the sort of outdated view of dinosaurs of them being, you know, these sort of slow, hard to find anything to do. They must be a scavenger. There's no other way it could do anything. This is also before the family, uh, the Spinosaur family is really sort of unified. And we start to get the, the full research done into it because at this point, most of the uh, the fossils of of the uh, of these different dinosaurs were sort of put into wastebasket taxa 
um, whilst people, you know, didn't have much knowledge of them. So nowadays we have a better view of them. Thankfully, in 1997, this, uh, you know, by 1997, this view hadn't really taken a hold and it was, it, you know, it was just there in the background. But Charrigan Milner uh, demonstrated direct dietary evidence in the stomach region. It contained, this is in um, one specimen, contained the first evidence of piscivory in any theropod dinosaur, that's the meat-eating dinosaurs, and that was uh, acid-etched scales and teeth of, uh, of a relatively common species of fossil fish found in the stomach contents of a fossilized baryonyx ribcage and you only get acid etching from something that's been eaten uh, mm. and that means that you know this is an animal that was eating fish this is not an animal that's eating carcasses there is however uh, a bit of uh, a bit of evidence for these guys not being purely fish eaters and, and being slightly opportunistic as to what they might eat because they have found in in the same specimen bone from a young iguanodontid probably a mantellosaurus in, in the stomach contents as well. And just like with any carnivore, if there's a chance for a free meal, they'll take it. So there's probably a chance that at some point it came across or even killed uh, a young iguanodontid uh, dinosaur. So yeah, they're, they're basically fish eaters, but they'll take a chance at whatever they can find. Now, the adaptions for being able to catch their prey, like I say, is that long, narrow jaws with that rosette of teeth at the end that allows them to use their snout like a gharial and catch slippery prey and hold on to it with that notch in their snout as well. These adaptions uh, suggest that baryonyx would have caught small to medium-sized fish and in a manner very similar to a crocodilian, uh, gripping them with their snout uh, and giving the teeth a sort of stabbing function whilst then tilting the head backwards and swallowing them uh, head first. Uh, larger fish would have been broken up with their claws, a bit like um, when we see grizzly bears at the side of a mm. river catching salmon. They, you know, they they use their claws to, to hook the fish out of the water, and baryonyx would be perfectly adapted to being able to do this. It's got that huge claw and can gaff out fish and pull them to the side as well. Now, the uh, the other name that gets given to a lot of these uh, these dinosaurs as starting to be given to a lot of these dinosaurs is hell herons because just like herons as well they'd have hung out by the side of rivers and and streams and just slammed their head into a fish to sort of pull them out and i think that's possibly the best name for the uh, for these dinosaurs is hell herons because you know nothing really invokes a cooler image than that in my mind i still prefer fish finger <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I was going to catch on, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> the discovery of this dinosaur sort of changed paleontology in Britain because up until this point, you know, we, we'd had the first dinosaurs found here. But shortly after sort of the 1900s, we start to see all the focus going to very much North America. They've got all the big dinosaurs, you know, mm -hmm. T-Rex, Triceratops, you name it. It's, it's all there. So... Britain sort of gets a bit of a backseat, but around the 1980s, in fact, in 1983, when this dinosaur was found, it really does help to re-energize the, the British public about British dinosaurs and how many amazing things we had roaming around this country, which are unique to this country as well. I will say that baryonyx has been discovered uh, once in Portugal as well, and that's basically the extent of what's been found. But the main specimen that was found uh, in January of 1983, a uh, British plumber, and I hate using the word amateur fossil hunter, like say, William J. Walker, uh, was exploring the smokejack clay pit in the Weddell Clay Formation uh, near Ockley in Surrey. Uh, he found a rock wherein he discovered a large claw 
but after uh, piecing it together at home, he realised the tip of the claw was missing. Uh, he returned to the same spot pit a few weeks later and found the missing part uh, after searching for about an hour. Now, both of you, I think, have seen the replica baryonyx claw that I've got, and you've seen how big that thing is. That It's an impressive-sized claw. So you could just imagine finding that in, in um, a clay pit like that. Uh, so Walker returned to the same spot uh, in the pit a few weeks later, found other bits and pieces as well. Uh, he searched for about an hour. He also found uh, a phalanx bone, uh, part of a rib. Um, Walker's son-in-law later brought the claw to the Natural History Museum in London, uh, where it was examined by the British paleontologists uh, Alan J. Charing and Angela C. Milner. And Milner is the one uh, that Rhypira venator uh, gets named uh, in honour of. And she also had another dinosaur named in honour of as well, because she did a huge amount of the well, the scientific work basically classifying this animal. So she identified it as belonging to a, a theropod dinosaur. Uh, the paleontologists found more bones and fragments at the site in the same uh, in the same year, in February. But the entire skeleton could not be collected until May uh, and June due to the weather conditions, because let's face it, it's probably it would have been raining through February uh, right the way through to May and maybe even June at that time of the year. A team of eight museum staff members and several volunteers excavated two metric tons worth of rock and matrix in uh, 54 blocks over a three-week period. Uh, Walker donated the claw to the museum and the Ockley Brick Company, um, the, the people who owned the pit, uh, donated the rest of the skeleton uh, and prov provided equipment to everyone uh, when they were on site. This area had been explored for, for over 200 years, but no similar remains have ever been found. So this was a real once-in-a-lifetime find. Um, there have been bits of baryonics found throughout you know, the rest of its range on the Isle of Wight uh, and, like I say, in Portugal. But this was the most complete skeleton. Uh, in fact, this skeleton was the most complete theropod skeleton from the UK and remains uh, the most complete spinosaurid skeleton anywhere in the world. So uh, it's, you know, it was a game changer in paleontology at the time. Uh, most of the bones collected were uh, encased in what's known as siltstone um, in, in nodules surrounded by a fine sand and silt uh, with the rest laying in the, the clay matrix as, uh, matrix as well. Uh, the bones were dis disarticulated and scattered throughout the area, but most were not far from their natural position. So essentially, the animal had died in one nice position and had stayed there relatively well for the 125 million years, um, with only a bit of disruption from, uh, from you know, when it had uh, been buried. And that tells us that essentially this animal didn't get fed on. There were no gnaw marks on the bones from other animals finding it. So it probably died out in a sandbank somewhere and was probably quickly covered over with mud and silt before being fossilized. So basically remained untouched for millions of years. Uh, the problem with the, um, the siltstone itself, it's rock hard. It's really, really tough nodules to get into. And it did take them quite a bit of preparation time to be able to actually fully restore the skeleton. The positions of some of the bones uh, were actually disturbed, though, um, by bulldozers, um, broken by mechanical equipment, um, you know, before they were collected. So, you know, some of the bones were damaged. But after piecing them together, the preparation of the, spe uh, the specimen was hard, like I say, due to the, uh, the toughness of the, uh, the rock. And it took six years of almost constant preparations to get all the bones out of the rock and get them. Uh, into place and being studied as well. So um, it was, yeah, a good deal of work to get that all sorted. And when it comes to baryonyx, well, if you want to see a baryonyx skeleton, the one that is a cast 
of that original skeleton. Uh, they have it in the Natural History Museum. If you have you guys been to the Natural History Museum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the the dinosaur gallery, it sort of hangs on one section of the wall. In fact, they've also got some of the original notes and everything from that excavation on show as well. So you can you know you can learn an awful lot about that particular specimen and the process that went into uh, being able to find it and everything. Yeah, from uh, from everything that was there, but. That is essentially Baryonyx, a dinosaur that I have absolutely uh, adored since I was a little kid and still adore to this day because it is one of those quintessentially amazing dinosaurs that it's it's a iconic British dinosaur. Of a British I, dinosaur. I, I think more people should be amazed with the dinosaurs that occurred in their country than oh, you know, absolutely. The, the sort of generalized one because it, it just shows what what was there. I'm always fascinated with what Britain looked like in the Cretaceous period or in the Devonian or whatever, you know, whatever period of time, as well, opposed just, to just another part. Merged with, uh, merged with the rest of Europe, really. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's uh, Baryonyx for you. Yeah. Always Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> in geological terms, is probably a little bit better. So we'll move on from uh, baryonics now and we'll go into our word of the week, which this week is explaining the difference between being a carnivore and being carnivorous. It's word of the week. Okay, we're into this week's word of the week. And this week's word of the week is to do with what you eat or, well, what you are. We're looking at the difference between being a carnivore and being carnivorous. Aaron, would you like to jump in? Yeah, so in a very similar vein to when we did this, when Gareth kind of led us on the amphibian versus amphibious route, it's very much the same thing. A little bit confused by the, the lay person, but essentially a carnivore is anything that belongs to the order carnivora. And actually their appropriate name is carnivoran. Uh, as opposed to carnivore but yeah so a carnivore a member of the carnivora order is an animal uh, defined pretty much by the adaptation to their molars so the teeth or to the back of the of the mouth there uh, which we call carnassials and they basically evolved to be meat shearing scissors they're very flat flat sided but but serrated on the top and they basically will slide past each other, slicing meat most efficiently. And in this order, you have you have your cats, so the entire cat family. You have the dogs. And then you kind of, everyone else in there is considered cat-like or dog-like. You have the bears, the uh, pinnipeds, uh, the mustelids, so that's your weasels and your otters, uh, so on and so forth. Now, not every member of... The carnivora order so not every carnivore is carnivorous there are pescivores animals that eat fish there are omnivores uh, so animals that eat a mixture of of meat and and other other things um vegetation and then you've got you've actually got herbivores in the carnivora order as well you go from the scale of a of a cat which is an obligate carnivore or a polar bear which eats upwards of 90% of the, 
of its diet is meat right through the bear family which are very omnivorous uh, in their tastes bears not only hunt but they'll scavenge meat and they'll also forage for berries and they'll eat fish all the way through to pandas and that's our our herbivorous carnivore uh, because they eat primarily bamboo and then on the other side of the spectrum you have carnivorous animals that are not carnivores or carnivorans uh, so these are things that will be labeled carnivore when you talk in conversation or when you watch a documentary things like great white shark tyrannosaurus rex these are animals that are carnivores they eat meat the other animals but they are not carnivores they're not so sorry they're carnivorous but they're not carnivores they don't belong to order carnivora uh, do you guys want to add anything yeah, uh, that's pretty much. No, oh, yes, that's pretty much summed it all up, isn't it? Really? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's sorry. one that's worth mentioning that always gets confused by people is the hyenas. Yes, Ooh. which are closer to cats. Cats. Yes, they are. If you, they are actually um, much closer to cats, actually. Yeah, you can actually because they're they're filiforms part they? of the cat lineage. Mm. Yeah, filiforms. That that well, that's it. Filiforms and caniforms. Yeah. Mm. Um, their but specific yeah, group is Viveridae. I mean, they're not, they're, they're almost comparable in their separation from true cats to the separation between true cats. To, to, to clarify, true cats is the small cats, large cat, and the big cats that we have around today. The hyenas yes. are separated from them in an almost comparable way to how the true cats are separated from the Macarodonts. And you know what a macarodon is, you just don't realise it. It's things like <laughs> Smilodon fatalis, so the uh, the saber-toothed cats. Yeah. Uh, so by that logic, you can see hyenas are, but they're essentially part of the cat lineage. They are in, in, in sort of comparable, a sort of convergent evolution to the dog shape, but yes. a member of the cat family. Yeah. Um, well, not a cat family, but closely related, more, more closely related. Cat yeah. Like yeah. the Macara, like like the saber toothed. The other the other thing I always find funny, especially when people talk carno, uh, carnivorous, is they don't tend to classify a lot of insects as being carnivorous, but they are. That's purely because people don't seem to always recognize insects eating other insects as mm. insects basically eating meat. It's just on a smaller scale. So spiders are carnivorous uh, almost exclusively. Uh, obligate carnivores apart from one or two species of spider that are uh, vegetarian um, oh. that's a species of uh, Porsche spider I believe the main one is the its, its Latin name is Bagheerii um, after Bagheera from the Jungle Book so uh, mm. yeah and that actually eats plants am I um, am I wrong in saying that um, in, in that's pretty much the same across the arachnid group because yeah. you've got yeah, yeah. mites ticks and scorpions are all kind of uh, well, no no actually um the moment you start going into harvestmen and some of the smaller oh. pseudo scorpions and things mm. they're detrivores they'll eat a bit of anything really right, but right, scorpions yeah. themselves and sort of true spiders and even tarantulas as well are carnivorous in uh, yeah. in their diet mostly just quickly it may also just be worth mentioning that obligate carnivore basically oh, yes. means that it has to it has to eat me, it only eats me. Mm. So cats, as Aaron rightly said, are obligate carnivores. It means they only eat meat. You cannot feed a cat a vegan or a vegetarian diet, it will die. 
Mm. Um, that's just the facts, I'm afraid. Yeah. As yeah. many a vegan has found out, unfortunately. Yes. Make their yeah, it's usually the, it's the cat that then suffers for people's lack of knowledge of the natural world. Yeah. Um, also, just because you threw insects out there, I think we should mention honourable mention to some plant life, which is carnivorous. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. There are some yeah. carnivorous plants out there. Yeah, pitcher plants um, and morning honeydew, which are basically use a, they, they all use ways of attracting insects into either a, like a pitcher plant, a tube that they fall into, uh, and then become digested in essentially their equivalent of stomach digestive juices or the, the morning dew plants where they get stuck on sticky leaves. And then are rolled up uh, and digested by the plant as well. They don't actually—they <laughs> don't actually entirely uh, rely on on insects as their main source of food. They're still drawing um, nutrients from the soil and everything. But this is a good way of supplementing their diet, being carnivorous, but also relying on other stuff. So you could almost consider omnivorous. them omnivorous uh, omnivorous plants because mm. they're drawing a lot of their nutrients from the soil. But because they live in generally nutrient poor areas, yeah, they supplement things by uh, by finding you know live prey to eat. Some of them can even end up you know swallowing mice uh, and rats, uh, mm. which will be a big food item for them. So to summarize: mm. a, car- a carnivorous animal is any animal that eats meat. A mm. carnivore or carnivoran is an animal with carnassial teeth. There we go. So the next time you're looking at a carnivore, it might not be uh, carnivorous. So we'll go on from our word of the week into this week's emails and see what we've got this week. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails and diving into the uh, the mailbag. Drew, what have we got? We have got a question from uh, that indie lady uh, who asked... What zoos are still on your must-visit list? And she also said that she's trying to make plans for tours. So we're going to throw in a couple of recommendations as well mm. uh, in here. Yeah, what, what, have you guys, what have you guys got? What have you thought about? Well, do you want to start us off, Drew, with your, your sort of five recommend or five ones that you want to go and see? And I, then I, we'll... In the UK, um, there are still some zoos I've not been to. Um, I have tried to visit as many as possible, but yeah, there's still a few. So there's Highlands Wildlife Park, which I've not been to up in Scotland. Heard lots of good things about that, um, as well as Yorkshire Wildlife Park as well. For sort of similar reasons, actually, because they're both big open space sort of zoos. Um, so, yeah, those two I would like to go like to go visit um, outside of the UK. The first one that sort of pops into my mind is one that my partner has been to, but I have not. Um, and it's Lisbon Oceanarium. Uh, which she said was just incredible. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to go there. Based, based on her recommendation, I would quite like to go there. There are a couple in, in the US that I would probably like to visit too, but I am, I'm quite hazy on my US zoos, to be honest. I actually can't really remember what's in what. But I think Georgia Aquarium is mm, one that that's supposed to be like, good that I would quite like to visit. But yeah, that's, uh, that's mine from the top of my head. Oh, I'll uh, I'll jump in next then, whilst Aaron is still, I believe, still looking at a list of of yours. Um, one that I can't remember the name of, and I'm struggling well, to find it. I'll I'll buy you some time with this. Um, so the the five that I really 
want to go and and see. I got to admit, um, I wouldn't mind going to Highlands Wildlife Park, uh, just like Drew said, because I can remember going there as a, a really uh, as a really long time ago, uh, 1994, I think it was. So I don't remember much. All I remember is seeing a bison um, up close. Uh, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see what it's like. Is it is it bison they have? <clears throat> I, I don't I don't remember. I think or they no. do have that now, okay. but I don't remember what it was at the time. Right. Um, other zoos, I wouldn't mind getting to see um, uh, Berlin Zoo. I've always wanted to go see Berlin Zoo itself with the <laughs> Drew is currently showing off the fact that he's been to Berlin Zoo um, it's on my list um, it's amazing the Ring of Fire Aquarium in Japan um, I've never really been one for like much to do with Japan but that really does interest me um, they've had some amazing stuff there in the years and they, they seem to be quite a big aquarium in, in what they do georgia aquarium is another one that i've always wanted to go and see as well which is very good reminding me there um true but um the the main one in america that i'd want to see would be animal kingdom mm. in uh in disneyland and disneyland doesn't really do it for me in fact that would be the only reason i'd probably end up going there is to see that because from what I've seen of it, it, it does look amazing, you know. And the Smithsonian National Zoo as well is another one in America I'd like to go and see. Which doesn't really, you know, these these are huge distances between some of these zoos. So, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's ones that I'll probably never get to go and see. But if I do ever make it to America or to Japan, those are ones that are certainly on my list. Aaron, what about you? You managed to find it yet? I think I found it. So... <laughs> Uh, the zoos I want to visit are, um, so I want to go to, I'd love to go to SeaWorld, Orlando and or San Diego, either one or both, uh, and Animal Kingdom, which is the Disney USA one. Um, mm. Obviously, whilst over there, I'll visit Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> I'd also like to go to Singapore Zoo, uh, Loro Park, Ten- Tenerife as well. I believe Drew's been there. I've been to Loro Park as well. Have you not been there? I thought you had I've been, not there. been there. No. Nope. Oh, okay. Ah, I've not even stepped foot on on the island of Tenerife yet. Oh. I should say t- Tenerife. Otherwise, my partner will murder me. She won't, but but she she might. If he's might not here next up. week, we know what's happened. She <laughs> listens. And the one I was trying to find, I'm not sure I've got the right name for it, but I f- I think it's called Polar Park. It's in Norway, and it's essentially. It's essentially Arctic species. It's mainly carnivores. You've got like like bears up there and stuff, and wolves and lynx. It's all kind of Arctic or 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 native Northern European uh, species. So I'd I'd really really like to go see that. And we said we're going to do zoos we recommend as well. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. I have. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Can I just just jump in quickly because yes. I have just remembered. We did, um, I did a news article on um, Zoo Knoxville uh, back in our amphibian week. Mm. Yes, I remember. Because they had a new reptile building. And I would very much like to go, very, very much like to go there. But yeah, I thought I'd throw that one in there as well. Because there's one that we all mentioned that we'd like to go to. Yeah. Talking about these has actually just jogged my memory with some of the ones that I have been to. And I've got a definite list of some recommendations here. These are... These are very much international collections to go to. Um, yes. Well, do you guys want? Do you want to go same order? 
Yeah, go on. Yeah, Drew, oh, if you want to start us off. Oh, with me, yeah. Uh, so, in the UK, again, I would recommend... Um, I, I mean, I'd, obviously, I'd recommend Ch- um, Chester. I'd also yeah, recommend... Definitely. Um, I'd also recommend Wild Place Project as well, which is what Bristol Zoo, well, it's basically the sort of the sister to Bristol Zoo, but um, because Bristol Zoo is shutting down, they'll move most of their animals into Wild Place Project. Other animals will go elsewhere. But yeah, Wildlife Project, uh, Wild, Wild Place Project is great. Um, I would also highly recommend, which I think probably my favourite zoo in the UK is Cotswolds Wildlife Park, um, because I I. I think I really enjoyed it because I wasn't expecting it that much when I went there. Uh, not because I'd heard anything bad at all. I just wasn't really. And uh, it blew me away how good it was. But in terms of international, I would highly, highly recommend both Berlin zoos. Uh, there are two. Um, so in, in inside Berlin and just outside, I would also recommend Leipzig Zoo as well because it's probably one of the only places you are going to see a pangolin. Um, mm. so just that alone is worth going there but they do have massive uh, they have a massive sort of uh, what they call Gondwana land which is where you go on a little boat basically and you go around on a uh, little little stream going through this massive tropical um, uh, sort of tropical house uh, which is incredible so though again top of my head those are my quick recommendations mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna say yeah, Chester Zoo is a, is a must for anyone um, wanting to see a zoo in the UK and doing it as amazing as they possibly can. Uh-huh. Um, that's always up there. The other ones that have just come to come to my mind: Jurong Bird Park in Singapore. Uh, I can remember going there in 2000, so it, it could be completely different by now. It may not even be there anymore. Um, but that was an amazing place, and it's the only place I've ever seen hummingbirds in captivity. Oh, cool. um, so that was definitely worth it for seeing things like that. Um, Auckland Zoo in New Zealand. Um, that was a, a really uh, nice collection. It's it's quite a contrast to see um, the, the sort of spectacle that is uh, because a lot of the animals that you know in in Europe and North America are, are relatively common in zoos are mm-hmm. a bit of a rarity in New Zealand, and to be honest, most people flock to go and see uh, giraffes and, and zebras there, as opposed to their own native wildlife. But their native wildlife, aviaries, uh, and enclosures, and and tropical, you know, like uh, nocturnal houses, I spent all of my time in there looking at one tank that had giant wesses in it. Um, mm-hmm. and the, in their torrent duck aviary, uh, looking at the torrent ducks and uh, yeah, amazing to see New Zealand wildlife, uh, up close like that. There was kakas and kias, um, all really close. Um, Laura Park, as you mentioned, that's definitely worth going to mm-hmm. that, that has a bit of everything that, you know, you could imagine and every parrot under the sun. One of the best species. gorilla enclosures I think you'll yeah. ever find at Laura Park. Definitely, also, they do a lot of parrot uh, conservation. Massive. Oh yes, yeah. Or well, Laura means parrot. I mean, in, in yeah, Spanish, yeah. I was about to say the same. Yeah, there there are more parrots. Or I've, I've seen more parrots there in one day than I think I'd ever seen, like species wise, in all of the years I've been a, a keeper. Um, there were mm. species that I'd never seen before up until that point uh, when I went there. So that that was something. 
I've got one more. <laughs> one that's definitely worth, um, I'd say, in the UK, even even as a smaller collection, is worth seeing, is, uh, is Sheldon Zoo. Um, Sheldon, oh, I knew you were going to say that, yeah. I, yeah. I agree. It's, I agree. It's a lovely little collection. Yep. It's down right down on the south coast of Devon. Um, and they've done some amazing stuff in a very, very small space. Uh, and it's got a very, very good team of uh, of people who, you know, run it as well. Um, and they've got those lovely uh, Williams Eye, uh, you know, electric blue day yeah, geckos. Yeah, the little geckos, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Lovely collection of those there as well. But yeah, those those would be the ones I would go with. They're pretty good. I've not been to Sheldon yet, so I'll probably take you up on your recommendation myself. Hmm. Mm. I will go down. Um, so I've actually kind of written mine out as a almost a route for you, actually. Ooh. So, oh, here we go. Yeah, I would start down in Paynton. Mm. Oh, yeah, um, that's a very good it, one. It's a beautiful zoo. It's it, I wouldn't say it's not my favourite zoo, but uh, I mean the Crocodile House is amazing. The gardens yep. are amazing. Um, Their plant just, collection, yeah, yeah. It's it's a nice zoo to go nice walk around and stuff so yeah only kiwis in the uk as well yeah and echidna there's echidna there mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um so yeah i'd go to paint i'd start off at painton and then i would go up to wild pet wild places which um bristol zoo's wild place project which drew has already recommended so i won't go into too much detail but i will say that between painton and wild place you could quite easily uh visit um Gareth's recommendation of Sheldon and ignore pretty much anything in North Devon. Um, and then you can go to Knowsley. Uh, sorry, no, not to Knowsley, not yet. You can go up to Paradise, just outside London. Paradise Wildlife Park. It's a great place if you want to see big cats. Uh, lots of new developments. Unfortunately, the dinosaurs are still not feathered, but... I don't you, think anywhere is. You don't, need to, you don't need to go there for the dinosaurs. Just go there for the big cats. Um mm. Because uh, they're 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 improving their enclosures uh, astronomically, and then from Paradise, then go up to Knowsley, but pretty much just for the bush dogs and tiger enclosures, because um, those two enclosures. Biased. <laughs> where it's not just that I'm biased because I work with those two species and I worked on the enclosures, but those t- the bush dog enclosure at Knowsley and the tiger enclosure at Knowsley are the best bush dog and tiger enclosures I've seen in in Europe. Um, hands down um so i highly recommend them then i would go across to doncaster to yorkshire wildlife park um it's a fantastic zoo uh and probably i reckon within the next five years will probably be my favorite zoo Uh, but right now my favorite zoo is the last stop on this trip and that is highlands wildlife park there is not a better zoo at the moment um in the uk you might notice that um uh, Chester Zoo is not on my list. It's partly because I've got a bit of Chester Zoo fatigue because everyone talks about how it's the best in the UK and I really do not agree with them. I think they do some excellent work both with their captive livestock and with their conservation projects, but I don't think it's all that. Um, I mean, go to it, it's worth going, but it wouldn't be on my on my tour de force of zoos. Um, and as a foreign, a, a foreign one, I really enjoyed Poema del Mar in um, Gran Canaria, which is a uh, is a marine park, uh, sorry, an aquarium basically. 
very cool place. Nice mm. crocodile enclosure too. Oh, crocodiles of the world. We forgot about that. Yeah, it's, I mean, there are multiple places. Yeah, there's there's loads. There are yeah. a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I say, we could end up going on all night just about places we'd go end up going to. But uh, yeah. Well, anyway, if you, uh, dear listener, want to uh, to get in contact with us and find out which zoos that you think we should go to and um, where you know which sites in the UK are, are definitely worth going to as well, uh, you can get in contact with us uh, at email. Um, by uh, sending us an email to thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. You can also get in contact with us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is at NHCupboard, uh, which is where we will put up all of the different bits and pieces that we end up discussing, some funny pictures and memes, all sorts of different things uh, that we have going on throughout the week. And that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's episode. So it just brings me to say a big thank you uh, to my two co-hosts. A big thank you, Drew. Farewell. My dear hobbits, <laughs> I will not say, do not weep, but not all tears are an evil. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. And uh, farewell, farewell to you too, Aaron. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> I distinctly remember that line in, in the end of The Lord of the Rings where yeah. Frodo goes, cheers. Cheers, cheers guys. <laughs> And obviously, a big thank you uh, to you at home for listening as well. Um, if you uh, want to leave us a review, like, subscribe, all of that sort of good stuff, uh, you can do that on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. Uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a baryonyx, um, you know, tell a pile of siltstone if you can break into it for six years. Tell a, tell a fish finger. Tell a fish finger, exactly. Finger um, a fish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings me to say a big thank you to you at home for listening and we will see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye no more fish fingers <laughs> no more mutants <laughs>